Good morning, fellowship. Would you stand and let's worship the Lord together. prayers that Christ would be magnified in this place and in our lives today. Would you lift your voice we sing? Were creation suddenly articulate with a thousand tongues to lift one cry then from north to south and east to west we Christ be magnified. Were the whole earth echoing his eminence, his name would burst from sea and sky. From rivers to the your voice we sing together Be 
are so glad that you've chosen to worship with us this morning. Uh, my name is Pat, and I'm one of the worship leaders here at Fellowship. And if it's your first time, we would love to get to know you. Uh, after the service, you can come up and say hi to me, or you can go to the central booth in the foyer and talk to Jimmy or someone on his team. So just find someone with the name tag out there, and they'll answer any questions you have about Fellowship. But we are a church of small groups. And I know during the summer, it's hard to get involved in a small group, but come fall, we want you to get connected here at Fellowship. So whether you come say hi to someone this morning or you decide to text the number on the screen, we'd love to get to know you. We come together in this room to celebrate the risen Christ. And so we've been walking through the Gospel of John, and if you've been paying close attention and you've had the study guides, you've seen that we've broken into three different sections. We had the I am statements, the seven I am statements. We had the seven miracles. And today we start the seven encounters. And we have Nick Rowland here with us to, to talk about Nicodemus' encounter with, the, with Jesus. And so I wanted to take some time just to spend some more time with the author, John, the beloved disciple. I want us to go to 1 John, one of his letters, 1 John 5. And in the Gospel of John, he says, I write these things to you that you might believe. And so this morning, we're going to have that challenge extended. Do you believe in the risen Christ today? But in 1 John, John closes with these words. And I want us to reflect on this as we prepare our heart to continue to worship through song, but to worship through the word taught this morning. John writes, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. So this morning, do you believe in the true God? Do you believe that He is the source of life and the source of joy? So before we continue to sing, just take a moment to reflect on his word, to prepare your heart, to pray, Lord, would you tune my heart this morning to sing your praise, to sing of your goodness. God, would we not miss an encounter with you today? Let's take a moment before we continue to sing. you stand with us once again and let's remember the gospel together. Let's praise the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. from heaven you came running there was mercy in your 
in this truth this morning. gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer there is no more for heaven now to give he is my joy my righteousness and freedom my steadfast love my deep and boundless peace to this sunny home my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me.
longer I who live, but Christ in me, yet not I, but Christ in me. This is the good news. The King of kings is reigning still. He has the right to rule in our lives, so may we offer our lives to him. God, would you be magnified? May our lives be that altar, a pleasing aroma to you. So this morning, may we continue to worship in spirit and truth as your word is taught. Would you teach us to walk by faith? Open the eyes of our heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Hi, my name's Nick. I haven't seen y'all in a while, um, but I get the blessing of serving at Fellowship Mosaic, which is our Saturday night congregation here at Fellowship. So we have uh, in our structure here, this larger thing that is called Fellowship Bible Church. We have multiple congregations, gatherings of people following Jesus together in Fayetteville and Bentonville. And we have two right here in Rogers, one that gathers on Sunday morning and one that gathers on Saturday night. So I get to serve the teaching team there, but I'm really excited to be back here with you this morning as we continue in this series looking at the life of Jesus through the Gospel of John. I have really um, loved this study. Um, by the way, Saturday night and Sunday morning, we walk through the same teaching series together, and so we're just following along at the same time. And what's been fun about this series is oftentimes when we teach through a book of the Bible, we start at chapter 1, verse 1, and we just go. And instead, we've taken a thematic approach to John's gospel. Because there's something that John has done that's, that's really fascinating. He, I mean, I think he's a literary genius the way he's done it. There are some threads that, that John introduces in the very first 18 verses, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, some ideas that he's going to weave throughout the entire gospel. And what we've done is, is we've taken each, a few of those threads and said, let's just trace that one and see what happens when we highlight that. So the first seven weeks, we looked at these seven I am statements, things that Jesus said about himself to identify who he is, primarily metaphorical statements that he said to introduce what it means that he is Messiah, that he's the son of God. And then we hit rewind back to the beginning and we walked through seven miracles, seven supernatural acts that Jesus performed and, and we saw that they had a very special purpose. At the end of John's gospel in chapter 20, John tells us he's not being sneaky about his purpose. He said he, re- he recorded these signs to point to a reality that Jesus is Messiah, Son of God, so that we could believe. All of the signs are not just fireworks displays to impress and awe a crowd. The whole point of a sign is they point to something. And the signs serve the purpose of showing us who Jesus is. We're about to enter into our our last section in this series, the last seven weeks. And these are seven encounters that people have with Jesus. And what we're going to see in these last seven is that the focus changes just a little bit. If, If the first two sections we looked at were all about finding out who Jesus is, we're now going to look at another thread that's important to John's gospel, which is How are people going to respond to who Jesus is? If the purpose of showing us the signs was so that people could believe, what does belief look like? What does it look like when somebody recognizes Jesus for who he is and responds appropriately? In fact, in John chapter 2, at the very end of that chapter, there's a really interesting uh, connection that sets up this concept. If you remember 
rewind way back two months ago. In John chapter 2, we saw the first sign that Jesus performed. It was when he was at that wedding, and he turned water into wine. And we're told that that was the first sign that he did so that people would believe that he was the Messiah. And then at the end of chapter 2, we read this. In John chapter 2, verse 23, Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Okay, so he's doing these signs in front of a big crowd, and there's belief. Lots of people are believing in him. This sounds like the exact situation we're looking for, right? But look at what it says next. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. There's a little play on words going on here that you can't really see in English, because that Greek word for they believed in his name is the same Greek root for he would not entrust himself to them. So it's almost as if another way to translate to capture it would be lots of people trusted in Jesus, but Jesus didn't trust them. He could tell there was something insincere, something shallow in the excitement around the crowds that were suddenly throwing their lot in with the miracle worker. It says, he didn't entrust himself for them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. This passage sets up the theme for the next seven weeks that Jesus knows what's going on in every human heart. We've seen the, the messages he preaches in front of the crowds. We've seen the miracles he performs in front of large groups. And now we're going to look at a few one-on-one -on -one encounters where Jesus clearly, supernaturally knows exactly what's going on in each person's heart and what needs to be said to draw out their unbelief and invite them to belief. This happens at the end of chapter 2, we're going to pick up the beginning of chapter 3. And in case you didn't know this, the, the chapters and verse numbers that we have in our Bibles, um, John didn't write those. Those aren't original. Those are something we've added after the fact just to help us find our way through. So if you were reading um, the original Greek that John wrote, this passage at the end of chapter 2 flows immediately into what comes next. So Jesus didn't entrust himself to the people for he knew what was in every person. Now... There was a Pharisee. This is the very first illustration that we get about Jesus knowing what's in each person. We go straight to this encounter in John chapter 3. If you have your Bibles and you want to jump in with us in John chapter 3, I invite you to do so. We read, now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So we get introduced to this, this man, Nicodemus, the Pharisee. Uh, the Pharisees were a, a, a group of leaders in the first century in Israel. And, and there were a few different um, groups all kind of vying for power and for influence. And, and they were all focused on really one big picture question. In the history of Israel, by the way, if you've taken panorama of the Bible, uh, you'll be aware of this. If you haven't, it's going to be coming up this fall. I really encourage you to jump in. In a panorama of the Bible, what we see is that God formed these people, Israel. They, he made them this beautiful kingdom, and they rebelled against him, so the kingdom was broken. And as punishment, they actually were kicked out of the land into what we call the exile. And during that period of exile, they were promised, I'm going to take you back to the land. 
and I'm going to restore the kingdom, and it's going to be beautiful. I'm going to come dwell with you. I'll be your king, and I'll restore the people. Well, they came back to the land, but the kingdom wasn't restored. They're back in the land at this point in the first century, but who rules Israel? Rome does at this time. There's no restoration of the people. The glory of God isn't there. So one of the live questions in the first century is, what are we missing? Why hasn't the kingdom come back? And so when you hear about the different groups, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, you'll read about these people in in the New Testament. One of the main things they're fighting over is, what does Israel need to do so that God will look on us favorably and restore the kingdom? And the Pharisees' answer was we need absolute holiness across all the people. If we can keep the law perfectly, in fact, even go above and beyond what the law requires to make sure that everyone's doing what's right, then God will look on us with favor. That's why they were really passionate about kicking people out who weren't on board, because those people had the opportunity to bring everyone else down. It's kind of like when I was in basketball, we had this drill we would run for conditioning where two players would run the length of the floor, passing the ball back to each other, and then shoot a layup at the end. And the way the conditioning drill worked was when, as a team, we made 50 consecutive layups, we got to stop running. So now picture the death glare that would go toward the player that missed the 49th layup. I know what that looks like because it was usually me. Okay? That anger that says, you just ruined this for all of us. Okay, we look down on them quickly, but that's what the Pharisees felt towards people who wouldn't keep the law. In their mind, failing to keep the law meant you are ruining the chance of the kingdom of God for everyone. And this was their project, to purify Israel so that the kingdom would come. And Nicodemus was one of their leaders. He was at the front line of this, teaching this, helping to lead Israel in this project. And so he comes to Jesus at night. Um, And there's a lot of questions on why, why this detail is recorded. Why would Nicodemus come to Jesus at night? There's a lot of great options. It it could be that some of the Pharisees were already against Jesus. This is early in Jesus' career, and so he hadn't quite had time to really make the Pharisees hate him yet. But there's potential there's conflict, and Nicodemus was embarrassed. Another possibility is that there were just crowds around Jesus during the day, and so Nicodemus just wanted a chance for a one-on-one conversation, and coming at night was the easiest way to do that. Um, Another possibility is that John records this little detail for a literary purpose, because he's going to play with, throughout the entire gospel, the idea of darkness and light. And darkness is not knowing God, and light is when we know God. So this might be John's literary pointing, literary way of saying Nicodemus came to Jesus in darkness, not knowing the truth. Um, could be, John loves to do, use double meanings. It could be a lot of those mixed together. I'm not sure. But the point is, he came at night and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Okay, a few things to notice here. First of all, he says we. Who's the we? No one else came with Nicodemus. So what's the we we're talking about here? Probably what Nicodemus is doing here is a lot of theories. I think the most likely is that Nicodemus is kind of indicating, hey, I speak on behalf of a lot of other people. In fact, 
I'm representing the people who are in charge, and I'm here to check you out. I want to know if you're legit. And so there's probably a little bit of throwing the weight of his authority around here. And, and he's, he's throwing Jesus a bone, saying, hey, we, we recognize you're doing some impressive things. That probably indicates you're a, a legit teacher from God. And notice he uses two words for teacher. The, the, the word rabbi, which means my teacher, come from an Aramaic root, and then the word um, teacher, which would be a Greek word. He's using two words to indicate we recognize you're a good teacher, Jesus. And so in one sense, he's being positive toward Jesus. But in another sense, what were the signs there to tell people? The signs are there to tell them that Jesus is Messiah, Son of God. What did Nicodemus take away from the signs? You're a pretty good teacher. So I think we're supposed to get, Nicodemus sees something good in Jesus, but his picture of Jesus falls way below what it should be. And then look at Jesus' response to Nicodemus. Jesus replies, Truly, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, this seems like Jesus just jumps into left field here. Like on first read, like, whoa, why are we talking about the kingdom of God? But remember who he's talking to? He's speaking to the Pharisee. What's everyone in Israel at this time want to know? How does the kingdom of God get here? And in the Pharisee's mind... The way the kingdom of God comes, the way everybody gets to see the kingdom of God is when the whole nation starts behaving in holiness and honoring God. And by the way, how's Nicodemus doing on that? He's crushing it. In fact, it's all the losers that are holding us back. And if I can just get them to straighten their act out, then we'll get to experience the kingdom. And here Jesus comes along and says, actually, Nicodemus, you're deficient. No one, not even the leader of the Pharisees, is going to glimpse God reigning unless he's born again. You see, Nicodemus came with an attitude of, I'm the authority and I'm here to assess you, Jesus. I'm here to decide if we're going to accept you. And, Nicod and Jesus turns the tables on him and by implication says, actually, Nicodemus, I'm the authority over the kingdom of God and your soul. You came to assess me, but actually I would like to assess you. No one will see the kingdom unless they're born again. Nicodemus responds, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, a lot of people tend to read this uh, response by Nicodemus as him just being an idiot. Um, I think that's highly unlikely. This guy was a biblical scholar. Um, he was well studied in the scripture. He could deal with metaphor and figurative language. Um, he was very able to take literal descriptions and understand them as spiritual representations. I don't think what's happening here is that he literally thought Jesus was describing going back inside your mother's womb for a second birth. I think Nicodemus is mocking Jesus a little bit. I think what he's saying is, being born again sounds ridiculous. What, you want me just to go back inside my mother's womb and have a second birth? I don't think that's a sincere question. I think Nicodemus is saying, Jesus, that sounds ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense what you're talking about. 
And so Jesus is going to go on to explain. Jesus answered in verse 5, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So Jesus starts to unpack this phrase, born again, using some language that he expects Nicodemus to recognize. Born of water and born of spirit. And then he describes the mysterious work of the Spirit of God that brings life to people. And he's saying, Nicodemus, you should recognize this language. This should not be new to you. At least an interesting question. What does it mean to be born of water and spirit? What does that phrase mean? Now, there's several different possible explanations out there. I'm going to focus on three of the more common ones. Some people think this refers to water baptism and spiritual birth. Uh, John the Baptist said, I come baptizing with water. There's someone who comes who's going to baptize you with the spirit. So some people think the water and the spirit are baptism and spirit. Um, That's possible. Uh, I think that's maybe the least likely because at this point, Christian baptism hadn't been introduced. It's very hard to imagine how Nicodemus would have understood that. Uh, That seems to be a a harder sell for Nicodemus. Uh, The second second possibility is that being born of water speaks to physical birth and that being born of the spirit is the spiritual being born again. Um, And the strongest case for this is what comes immediately after because Jesus says flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit. So they would see those two in parallel. Um, This is the the view of our illustrious leader, Sam Hannon, um, that he he takes on this passage. And I think Sam is wrong because I lean toward the third view. Um, And I think that what Jesus is describing here is one new birth that comes that is represented by both spiritual cleansing with water and spiritual life take a look at ezekiel chapter 36 in ezekiel 36 god says to the people of israel in exile about what's going to happen when they come back he says for i will take you out of the nations i'll gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land i will sprinkle you i will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean i'll cleanse you from all your impurities from all your idols I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So in Ezekiel 36, we have this idea of water and spirit, both representing this new work that God's going to do to transform people when they come back. Now, the vast majority of the evidence out there clearly supports my view. A very slim amount of evidence supports Sam's view, but I don't want to prejudice you. Go study it on your own and come to, I'm, okay, I'm clearly joking. Um, But one thing I think that's important to take away here, there are a lot of passages like this, phrases and words that are tough. And you can make a really strong case for any of those views that are up there. Um, And it's fun to be able to take jabs at each other and disagree. But you know what's not confusing? Is the main point that Jesus is making. What's the point? Whatever exactly the words water and spirit mean, the point Jesus is making is that no one enters the kingdom without God doing a supernatural work in their lives. Remember how we said that John introduced all of his themes at the very beginning? Look at what John wrote in John chapter 1. 
Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, referring to Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The point is, there is a new spiritual birth, a new spiritual life that everyone has to experience before they'll be a part of God's kingdom. Now, everyone in here experienced birth. Thank God none of us remember that experience. But I can guarantee you, no one in here contributed any effort to their birth, right? That was something someone else labored through so you could have life. You were a recipient of that gift of life. And and that is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, this is not something you can accomplish. This is not something you can muster up the strength to do for yourself. You need God to act in your life in a powerful way to make you new. And apart from that rebirth, not even you, the great teacher of Israel, is going to see the kingdom of God. I got to hear Matt Natesel teach on this last night, and he he made a brilliant connection. He, He said, it's because of this that Jesus was able to say, the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going to be further ahead in line at the kingdom than all you scribes and Pharisees. Because it's the people who recognize they need new birth who are going to be at the front. And so he lays this this bombshell on Nicodemus that implodes his worldview of how the the kingdom gets here. And Nicodemus responds in verse 9, well, how can that be? This is completely outside Nicodemus' realm of possibility for thinking. And Jesus responds, you're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, now look at this. I think Jesus is getting a little sassy here in verse 11. Uh, Remember how Nicodemus showed up and said, we know. And now Jesus says, well, let me tell you what we know. We speak of what we know. We testify to what we've seen, but still you don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Jesus looks at him. Now notice Nicodemus has a problem of understanding and Jesus reframes it. Nicodemus, your problem is not understanding. Your your problem is accepting and believing. Messiah is sitting in front of you. You saw the signs, but you didn't see the kingdom of God and the king right in front of you. How could you miss this, Nicodemus? Now, I remember one of the, as I first studied this passage, I was, I'm, I'm thinking, isn't he being a little hard on Nicodemus? I mean, should Nicodemus have really gotten this? I mean, that seems like a, Nicodemus seems like he's got a pretty good understanding of the Old Testament, doesn't he? Do the law, obey, live in holiness, and God blesses you. I mean, that's what it all said, right? Wasn't Jesus bringing something new? That's actually a really poor reading of the Old Testament that I had. Should Nicodemus have been able to read the scriptures and recognize that he needed new birth to see the kingdom? All the way back in Deuteronomy, from, the, from when Moses is first telling Israel what's going to happen, he actually tells them, you're going to go in the land, You're going to fail to keep the law. You're going to rebel and you're going to get kicked out. And this is what Moses tells them is going to happen. 
He says, God will bring you back to the land that belonged to your ancestors. You will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. He said, you're going to fail to live the way you should, so God's going to have to do a work on your heart so that you can learn to love him. Then when they actually got ready to go in exile, Jeremiah said this. Jeremiah promised them, so he said, this is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Again, what's going to happen after the exile to prepare Israel to see the kingdom? God's going to do a work on their mind and hearts. That's what's needed to be tra- for transformation. And then in Ezekiel, we already saw the chapter 36 reference where he said, I'm going to cleanse you with water. I'm going to give you a spirit. Then look what happens immediately after that in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Over and over and over again throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the teaching is consistent. If Israel tries to keep the law in their own strength, they will fail every time and they will not see the kingdom of God. So what has to happen for them to see the kingdom of God? They need the spirit of God in their hearts to come make them new and give them life so that they are able to love God the way they ought to. Nicodemus should have seen it. Israel should have seen it. And yet here he is, the master teacher, completely missing the point. And so, Jesus points Nicodemus to who he really is. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. He's identifying himself as not just a teacher. I came from God's throne. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus references a story from back in the book of Numbers, where because of Israel's unfaithfulness, poisonous snakes came in or biting people, and they're getting sick and dying. And to save them, God has Moses make a, a bronze snake on a pole and put it up in the camp. And everyone, as they're dying, look up, at this snake on a pole. And when they look up and trust the Lord, he brings healing. And Jesus pulls this kind of obscure story out of the book of Numbers and says, Nicodemus, remember how that worked? Remember how when a bunch of cursed people were dying, God provided a snake up on a pole that was lifted up in front of the people and when they looked with faith, they were healed? Just like that, the Son of Man's going to be lifted up for healing. And everyone who looks on him with faith will believe. And then we get this beautiful summary statement of what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, I don't know what happened 
for Nicodemus in this moment. I don't know what level of faith transpired in his heart. But a few chapters later, we're going to see that when, when Jesus is on trial, Nicodemus is going to say, hey, hold up, let's hear what he has to say. And then, even more powerfully, once Jesus has been crucified, Nicodemus is going to rush to be the one who cares for his body and oversees his burial. I don't know when it happened, but I feel very confident that at least when Nicodemus saw Jesus lifted up on a pole, that it clicked. I have to imagine this conversation was just ringing in Nicodemus' ears as he saw the Son of Man lifted up. And in this encounter, the teacher realized he didn't know enough, that he couldn't do enough to see the kingdom. He needed to be transformed. If I could say it another way, eternal life is not just being a better person. It's not just knowing a little more, doing a little better, sinning a little less until you reach some threshold that you're good enough. Eternal life is trusting Christ to make you an entirely new person. In the 1700s, this truth rocked the American colonies. As a few people by the name of George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, John and Charles Wesley, they fell in love with the reality that it didn't matter your church background. It didn't matter if you were with the Methodists or the Congregationalists, if you were with the Church of England. It didn't matter where you came from. It didn't matter how good your church attendance was. If you had not trusted in the Savior, then you weren't a part of the kingdom. And they went across the countryside preaching this message and thousands of people, uh, thousands of Christians trusted Jesus. We call it the Great Awakening. When a group of people recognized that even the best religious people need to be born again. So, the question that I think we all need to wrestle with this morning is do you believe? It's more than voting with the right political party, attending a good church and trying to raise your kids by good family values. It's more than reprogramming every station on your radio to KLRC. Is there a moment in your life where new life began? And I can tell you, I'm not exactly sure with certainty when that moment was for me. I remember when I was five, being at my little Sunday school class and hearing about trusting Jesus and going, well, of course I want to trust Jesus. I want to follow him. And then I remember a couple of years later when I was seven, being at a summer church camp and hearing about the idea of sin and that my sin needed forgiveness and that Jesus died on the cross in my place to offer me forgiveness. And I went, I need forgiveness. And then I remember being 13 and being just wrecked with doubt 
over whether I had like prayed it right, whether I had done it right. I remember laying in bed night after night after night, asking again and again for Jesus to save me, just in case I had gotten it wrong the last time. And I remember coming to FSM as an eighth grader and sitting with Sam Hannon and telling him how confused I was and how panicked I was. And Sam like took me by the shoulders and said, Nick, are you trusting Jesus to save you? Do you trust him? I said, yeah. He said, are you trusting in anything else? I said, no. And he said, then don't trust in your ability to name a date. Trust in Jesus to save you. So do you trust him? I want to invite, invite you this morning. If you're a Nicodemus, or if you've lived a life of just completely running from God, whether you've avoided trusting God by being really good or being really bad, it doesn't make a difference. We all need to be born again. So let's pray that way. Lord, every one of us needs new life. Every single one of us needs to be transformed by the Spirit of God getting inside of us and making us new. So God, I pray with anyone in here who's, who's recognizing their need to respond to an encounter with Jesus. Lord, I pray we trust you. We trust you for salvation. We trust you for new life. We don't want to just be made a little better. We want to be made new. So Lord, make us new this morning. Thank you that you were lifted up so that we could be saved. We pray things in Jesus' name. Amen. not sing this moment away, but reflect on the gospel together. Would you stand with us? Let's declare this with one voice. Jesus paid it all. I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in
This is the moment when we say a benediction and we dismiss the service. But as we were planning today, I brought this idea up to Nick that I think there's actually two applications today. And the second application is really something that God's been working on in my heart. So Nick challenged us to, to be born again. 
And I pray that if you made that decision today, that you would tell someone. But maybe you're like me and you think back to a moment, maybe you were seven like me, or maybe it was just a few years ago, but you found out what it means to take up your cross, that life is not all easy. And God has really spent some time working in my heart with another book that John was the author of, the book of Revelation. And in that book, we see seven letters to seven churches. And today I want us to look at the letter to the church in Ephesus. This is, this is me and maybe it's you today. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent, do the works you did at first. Have you, have you lost your first love? And I think for me, it's not that I've completely fallen from faith or anything, but life gets busy and things steal your focus. And I think God's teaching me what it means to remember the simplicity and the sweetness of the moment of salvation and to return there and to live in that joy that's found in his presence. So as we sing one more song, this scripture is gonna stay on the screen and I want you to just rest in this truth and spend time with the Lord. And if I lost my first love and remember, repent and return. Sing this over. I remember when all I knew to do was sing your name. I remember when all I longed to do was give you praise. Jesus, like. The first love fire in me. I wanna fall in. I wanna fall in. I wanna fall in love with you again. Back to the start where it was all about one thing. I wanna fall in love with you.
this be our prayer? Jesus, like the first love found, come in me, my one desire. Jesus, like the first love found, come in me, my one We pray. And Jesus, like. thank you for your love that never leaves us or forsakes us. God, that your rod and your staff comfort us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And as Isaiah reminds us that even when we are faithless, you are faithful. So God, we rest in the truth of the gospel this morning. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus. That all who believe in him but have everlasting life. But God, may we not just have that moment of salvation and then go our own way, but may we follow you and walk by your spirit daily. So God, would you light that first love fire in our hearts, a fire of devotion and faithfulness. And would you remind us of what you've done and what you've called us to. Your kindness leads us to repentance. So may we return daily to you as we ask for our daily bread, that you would forgive us our trespasses, 
as we forgive those who trespassed against us. And you'd lead us not into temptation because we believe that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning, fellowship. Remind you that our prayer room is open. We have Barry and Sally. They'd love to pray with you. Would you go in peace this week?